Happy Saturday. It's July 29th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. We've got a terrific show this week filled with great guests and stories. As many of you know, Howard Bloom has been reporting on the riveting story of the killing of those four students at the University of Idaho. And this week, he's here to explain how the attorneys of the accused killer, Brian Koberger, have an audacious plan to prove his innocence. Then, Leslie M.M. Bloom has the story of the author of one of the most beloved children's books ever, who was also the forgotten prophet of nuclear doom. If you've seen Oppenheimer, the movie, it's a story that will resonate with you. And finally, it's almost August, and if you're still looking for somewhere to escape on your summer holiday that is far, far, far from the madding crowd, Marcia De Sanctis has just the place for you. Ashley, where would you like to begin? Well, Michael, I think we should start with the latest on the killings of those four University of Idaho students. We've spoken before with Howard Bloom here. He is a journalist who has been following all of the twists and turns through his series of investigations for airmail. In this week's issue, he reveals how Koberger's defense team plans to prove his innocence. Could they actually get him off? Unclear, but if if anyone can tell us, it is Howard Bloom. He's the author of several books, including the Edgar Award-winning American Lightning, Terror, Mystery, and the Birth of Hollywood, and The Century of Crime. He is currently writing a book about the Idaho student murders for HarperCollins. Welcome, Howard. Okay, Howard, so you've been doing intrepid reporting on this story out of Idaho, but suddenly, as you reveal in this week's issue of Airmail, Koberger's defense team saying, not so fast, that they think it's not case closed and they're going to get him out of this case. Take us through their thinking and what their strategy is here. The defense team began by looking at the evidence that the prosecution has. The prosecution very triumphantly trots out that they have DNA on the knife sheath. They have uh, videos of Koberger's car in the area the night of the killing, that they also have Koberger being not just in the vicinity of the house, 13 times. And they put this all together. And then when the defense looks at it, they say, well, the DNA is just touch DNA, not blood DNA. That really doesn't count for too much. In all the car videos, there's not one single photo of Koberger behind the wheel or of the license plate of the car. And there sure are a lot of Hyundai Elantras in Idaho. And as for the cell phone triangulation, well, that puts them within 13 miles, really, of King Road residence. And that's a pretty large neighborhood. It's enough for suspicion, but not for conviction. And then when the defense began looking even closer, a couple of things became clear to them. First of all, there is no connection at all between Koberger and the victims. There's been reports in the press that Koberger had been direct nailing a couple of the girls who were killed, that he had bumped into them in a restaurant in downtown Moscow. The defense is saying, not so fast. That's not true. There is no connection at all. And if there is no connection at all, then there is no motive. And that makes you think of a couple of things. One, you have to look at, is Koberger really the most likely suspect? For example, he's able somehow to kill four people in a space of eight minutes, and he's not a trained assassin, he's a graduate student, and then he's able to exit the house, which cops who first reported came to the scene described as a bloody mess, a horrific scene, without a speck of blood on his clothes, on his car, or in his apartment. And if 
Kohlberger didn't do it. I think as the prosecution is now saying in an explosive motion that they filed that he has an alibi, then what could have happened? And this all circles back, according to people I've been speaking with, to drugs. That explains many of the mysteries of this case. Yeah, so take us through the potential drug connection and why the defense has really gone on the offensive now. Well, fundamental to this case is extremely perplexing mystery of why there is this sort of eight-hour gap between one of the students having spotted an intruder in the house and then reporting it to the police. So the defense began with that mystery weighing on them. They tried to look for answers. What they've uncovered and what I document in my piece this week is a network of drug dealing on Greek Row, where it's in the University of Idaho and also in Pullman, Washington at Washington State University. And it seems that perhaps principals who were involved in that alleged narcotics trafficking on Greek Row had connections to some of the people in the house. And this raises the question, did Kohlberger knew them? And now the defense is trying to answer that by looking at a very provocative pool party. This pool party happens at July 9th at a student complex called the Grove in Moscow, Idaho. It's Kohlberger's first day in Moscow. He's just been in Pullman, Washington at Washington State University. And he's invited to this party because his father who went out west with him when he first started graduate school, made the trip with him so his son wouldn't be alone and help him get acclimated to this new life away from Pullman, Pennsylvania, goes up to one of the people who lives in Boberger's new apartment complex and says, maybe you can take care of my son. He's pretty shy. So the guy who was an army veteran, a nice man, he invites Koberger to this pool party Koberger goes to the pool party. He's hanging around with the DJ. He's hanging around with a couple of other people. They're having fun. Koberger is in his bathing suit, sitting in the shallow end. And while he's there, according to witnesses that I've spoken with, he gets the phone numbers of two women who are at the party. Both of them are in bikinis. One of them has pink hair and tattoos in an intricate design going up her thigh. And he gets these numbers. This is Koberger. After he gets these numbers, he leaves shortly thereafter. But while he was there, did he meet any of the people who were involved in the alleged drug trafficking? That's the question the defense and perhaps even the authorities are looking into now. Why is this important? Because one of the people who's allegedly involved in the drug trafficking lives just a two-minute drive from the house on King Road. I went to that residence. It's on a cul-de-sac. And it's very possible that Koberger, who was, it's well known, a former heroin addict, might have been going to score recreational drugs from this person he met at the pool party on that night in question. Perhaps that is the defense's big alibi that they're going to present. But it certainly raises questions. And remember, all the defense has to do is to present a story that will convince the jurors that maybe there's not enough evidence to send a man to an execution chamber, because this is now a case involving the death penalty. All right. So I'm glad you brought up the jury, because obviously the defense team is 
going to aim to create as much doubt as possible in the minds of the jury in Idaho, in this community. Do they think they have the potential of a favorable jury or even an open-minded jury at this point? Well, many people thought that in a town like Moscow, you'd be able to get a jury that will send Kohlberger to either the death chamber where you get an intravenous cocktail of drugs, or now it's possible under a new Idaho law just passed the first week in July that if you can't get the chemicals necessary for this lethal cocktail to be injected into Koberger, you can send him up in front of a firing squad. However, their plans for the death penalty might not work out too well. I found out to my surprise when I spoke to Pastor Doug Wilson. Pastor Wilson is head of the Christ Church group in Moscow. It's a group of about 2,000 members strong that is very much a large presence in the town, and they've been trying to turn the town, as they say in their own words, into a theocracy. They've been buying up real estate, they have bookstores, they have their own college in the town. And when I spoke to Pastor Wilson, he said, you would think that we'd be very pro-police. However, we've had our own run-ins with the police during COVID, where we had people arrested at a prayer gate, where they had, in defiance of the COVID towns, COVID regulations, an open air, unmasked prayer session. And Pastor Wilson's son and grandson, who was a student, incidentally, at Columbia University in New York, were arrested for affixing anti-COVID restriction stickers on a lamppost in downtown Moscow. This has led to a long and protracted lawsuit And Pastor Wilson has said, we have seen cops go on the stand and lie about us on the church activities. We know we can trust many of these cops. He's issued a weekly encyclical that says in part that there's corruption in the town and the police are part of it. So Pastor Wilson is convinced that his flock will be rather skeptical if they're chosen for the jury and have to believe police testimony. And he's also saying you have to look at this in an open mind. He said perhaps you have to consider the possibility that Koberger is not guilty if the police are putting together this case against him. So with that sort of mindset, I think getting a conviction will be increasingly impossible in a town like Moscow. And the questions the defense is now raising become a very enticing narrative and one that might be able to sway a jury. It's amazing reporting this week, Howard. As always, from the beginning, you've surrounded this story and so grateful to you for bringing all these insights and new information. So when is the trial now set to begin? The trial is supposed to start October 2nd, but I wouldn't necessarily grab a hotel room so quickly. I predict, and this is after talking to many people involved, it will be postponed. It could be postponed as much as six months, and they might even change the venue. They might decide that they don't want to have it in Moscow, that there's too much prejudice in the town, and maybe it'll be moved to Boise or some other place in the state of Idaho. But that's just conjecture at this point. But October 2nd seems awfully close, and I don't see the case going to trial then. Well, one thing that's not conjecture, as I said, is your reporting. It's riveting on a case that's sort of fascinated all of us. And as you know, case closed, not so fast. So, Howard... Thank you again for bringing your time and energy to Airmail and to us on the podcast today. And I encourage everyone to read your latest installment in this week's issue of Airmail. Thank you, Howard. 
thank you, and I hope to talk to you again soon after I write my next installment. <laughs> I have a feeling we will be talking to you, Howard, so thank you. Take care. It's going to be fascinating to watch how this all unfolds over the next few months. But actually, on a slightly different note, we've got Leslie M.M. Bloom here with, I think, a very interesting story. If you've seen Oppenheimer, you know about the man who created the atomic age. But did you know that E.B. White, the beloved writer of classic children's books such as Stuart Little, my personal favorite, was also a passionate voice against nuclear proliferation? I thought I knew everything there was to know about E.B. White, and it turns out I was wrong. Who knew that he was such an active vocal anti-nuke activist. Leslie M.M. Bloom is here to tell us all about it. She is a historian and author most recently of Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up, and the reporter who revealed it to the world, which was about war correspondent John Hersey reporting on the horrors of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. She's also the author of Everyone Behaves Badly, the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises, as well as her nonfiction books, Let's Bring Back. And it happened here. Welcome, Leslie M.M. Bloom. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks to you guys for giving me the chance to tell the story. Okay, so a lot of people only know E.B. White as the author of many of our favorite children's novels, including Charlotte's Web, The Trumpet of the Swan, and so on. Also, here is New York, one of the best things ever written about our fair city. But tell us a little bit more about him as a journalist and specifically how his views changed after the public became aware of what was going on with the Manhattan Project. So E.B. White had been with The New Yorker pretty much since the beginning. Since it was founded in 1925, he was originally a contributing writer and then became a staff writer in 1927. And there's a, sort of a misperception about The New Yorker that it was kind of on ton and irreverence straight through its early tenure. But when World War II had come about, it went on to a wartime footing like every other major and minor publication and had very serious war coverage, very serious war commentary. As you guys know, John Hersey had the blockbuster story of the war where he reported on the devastation of Hiroshima by the atomic bomb. E.B. White was in that crowd also at The New Yorker. And when America won the war by using the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, everybody was celebrating. Obviously, it was the end of a catastrophic global war, but people like E.B. White were looking at how the war had been won and with the atomic bombs and what it meant, not just in terms of ending that global conflict, but what it meant for humanity to have entered into the atomic age. And they were happy that the war was over, certainly, but they were instantly aware. And E.B. White, in particular, was instantly aware that humanity had entered this epoch of unfathomable peril, as I say in the story. And literally three days after Japan surrendered on August 15th in 1945, he has his first column where he's talking about the bomb. And he says, look, mankind is messing with God's stuff. It's stealing God's stuff, is what he said. And so it really began for him a decades-long campaign of warning the world about the nuclear threat and about the true implications of living in the atomic age. Leslie, one of the things I love about your story is you note about White, you say that it took an incredible amount of bravery for him to do this at this period when obviously coming after the victory of the war, any criticism was not to be sort of wasn't very popular. How do you see White and and also, what was his solution? Did he propose any solutions on how to navigate this period that we should be looking at? Well, you're right. I mean, it was not a popular position to take to criticize America and the way that it ended the war. And for instance, when John Hersey's story came out, which documented the true aftermath of Hiroshima, I mean, he left town. He left New York when that story was published because God knew what kind of blowback he was going to get. E.B. White's criticisms and his columns and his essays, they spanned decades. And that also transpired partly during the McCarthy era. Anybody who's criticizing America's 
conduct during the Cold War was really vulnerable to attack. And he's fearless. He's just this courtly, gentlemanly farmer from Maine who's splitting his time between his Maine farm and writing children's books, but living in New York, who's swinging arrows at the heart of America's justification for escalating the nuclear arms race. I mean, it really does take an enormous amount of courage, especially during those years. And everybody at this point, civilians and experts, are grappling with the intractable problems of nuclear dependence, as it was often called in the 50s and 60s. And White's solution, proposed solution really, was pretty impractical, but he was still passionate about it anyway. He proposed a world government. He had seen that, to his mind, the world's governments had learned apparently nothing in World War II, which he correctly called the worst bloodbath in history, that nationalism had snapped right back into place. Even in the structure of the UN, he was completely discouraged by how, as he felt, ineffective the UN had become even since its advent in 1945. So in his mind, the only thing to do was to replace national governments with international governing bodies because the nuclear threat, to his mind and correctly, is an international threat. Nuclear warfare does not respect, and nuclear fallout does not respect national boundaries. So obviously that solution didn't pan out. It was not the most practical solution, but it was what he proposed nonetheless. I don't think it should be held against him that it didn't work out. He tried, but it was his best shot. Leslie, as you note, he writes these beautiful books, Stuart Little and Charlotte's Webb. How does a man so romantic in his writing balance out, as you note, this kind of pessimism or sort of worry. When you look at who he is, how do you reconcile those two differences? It's, it's a fascinating question, and it's one of the reasons why the nuclear writings are so interesting, right? And but when you look at something like Charlotte's Web, I mean, that book is really about existential struggle in its own right. And I mean, there are very serious themes in Charlotte's Web, and a lot of critics were very disturbed by that book when it was released in 1952. So it's not like he's absenting very serious subjects of life and death from his children's works. I mean, here's a, a serious-minded person. One of the things that distinguishes is E.B. White when he's talking about whether it's a life cycle death that you see in Charlotte's Web or nuclear threat. He brings sort of like a kitchen table tone to it. He has a real gift for making incredibly upsetting and difficult subjects accessible to any reader. The thing that's interesting to me about White is that as a potential asset when talking about nuclear subjects even today is that a lot of nuclear experts and reporters have a difficult time conveying material about nuclear stories because there's a lot of science involved and also it's a truly terrifying topic. So people shut down on two fronts. They can't fathom the science and they can't fathom the destruction. But E.B. White in his tone, in his children's book tone, it's never condescending, but it's deeply accessible and witty and warm. And there's always lacings of gallows humor through his reporting. He's an enormous asset in bringing back, helping people articulate the questions surrounding nuclear subjects, whether it's the perils of a re-escalating arms race or fallout from accidents or from testing. The unlikeliness of E.B. White as a nuclear advocate is really just what's stunning to me. And I think one of the things that has been so surprising is that he's totally forgotten in this respect. And I'm confused about why. I mean, believe me, people in the nuclear watchdog community are really, they urgently are looking for voices to help relay the nuclear threat, especially now that the world has woken up to the fact that we're in a moment of unprecedented peril. And here's somebody who is 
one of the most celebrated and well-known children's book authors. I mean, his name has never gone out of the public consciousness, but nobody knows about these writings. Just even when I was interviewing for this story, asking people for comment, just, I had no idea. I had no idea. And so it's just great to have the opportunity to talk about this critical and fascinating body of work with you guys. So thanks again for giving me the chance to write about it and talk about it here. Leslie, you're a star. The writing is heaven on earth, and we cannot wait to talk to you again very soon. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. So appreciated. Thank you. It's a beautiful story in this week's issue of Airmail. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Take care, Leslie. Love her. Love her. What's not to love about E.B. White's writing as well? So I love always when you get a new context for someone and someplace and something. It's a discovery, and that's kind of what Marcia DeSanctis has this week, Ashley, is an amazing discovery of some place to go if you're looking for a great getaway. She's here to tell us about her travels to Mongolia and why a little bit of agony and a whole lot of ecstasy make Mongolia the hottest travel destination that no one's talking about yet. Marsha is not only one of my favorite people to have a phone conversation with, but she's also one of the most beautiful travel writers out there. She writes about other things too, but I think she really shines in her travel stories for us. And she likes a far-flung destination that is not only going to make you think differently about where you live and how you live, but she's not searching for a great place to go to the beach. She's always looking for mind-expanding universes and achieving that through travel. So today she's going to take us to Mongolia, not a place that perhaps was on our list before, but it certainly is now. Martha's the author of numerous essays, numerous reported pieces, and also the new book, A Hard Place to Leave. Welcome, Marsha. Marsha, how did Mongolia first come across your radar as a destination that would appeal to travelers? I think that Mongolia is a place that might be moving up in the wish list, the bucket list of people or for people. It's, um, I think that these days with kind of an age of globalization and maybe urbanization, a lot of places are possibly becoming very similar. And the experience of travel can be very similar in many corners of the world. Mongolia has always appealed to me because it is, and this suspicion was born out when I got there, it's very different. It's incredibly unique. There is nothing like it in the world. And just to experience that vastness, I mean, if you figure it's a country with 2.8 3 million people, 19th largest country in the world with a population half that of the city of Phoenix. The vastness, the emptiness, the beauty, and also just this rich cultural heritage of of the nomads. So I was really curious to see that and so happy I did. And so how did you experience that? Because as you point out, it's not easy to get there. So how did you experience it? And in, in for our listeners, what's, what's the best way that they can do that? There are limited ways to get there. The best way is through South Korea, through Seoul. So there are two airlines that go through there. So Korean Airlines and Asiana Airlines. Turkish Airlines flies there. So those are just kind of the basics of getting there. But it is a long way. But a lot of incredible things are worth are worth the effort and worth waiting for. So yes, it takes a long time to get there. But the government, from what I can tell, and I didn't go as a guest of the government, but obviously I know I heard a lot of things that were kind of afoot. And that's that they are trying to draw tourists. They've built these beautiful new places, this museum, this splashy new airport that really is quite extraordinary. So I think the best way is to just get there and figure out your itinerary beforehand. Obviously, going to the Gobi Desert, that's what I did. 
that's where this incredible landscape, this dreamy moonscape, it's everything from desert to kind of New Zealand-like sheep-filled green hills to sort of arid, stony earth. You obviously have to have a guide. You have to have someone take your hand. We had an incredible guide named Hallie, and she's a geneticist and a scientist and a teacher, but in the summertime works as a guide, so I can't recommend her highly enough. And then there's the place that I stayed. Went through Ulaanbaatar, the capital city. Interesting place. It's definitely trying to shed its kind of socialist architecture, socialist kind of heavy cement atmosphere. And then took a flight to really the middle of the desert and stayed in a place that called Three Camel Lodge, owned by a Mongolian-American. It's the only luxury eco-lodge in the Gobi Desert. And it's a really unique place. It's part of a group of hotels. And I'll just put in a plug for them because I do a lot of traveling. And I think what they're doing is pretty great. It's called Beyond Green. And it's a very, very kind of careful vetting process that these that hotels have to pass in order to be a member of this portfolio. There's only 36 hotels in the world. And a big thing in this kind of hotel, which Three Camels Lodge really was an expert in, is it's sustainability, but it's not just recycling the plastic bottles or not having plastic bottles at all, but it's really, it's preserving cultural heritage and kind of a historical heritage. So this is a place that is built in the middle of the desert in these, they're pronounced gares. A gare is a Mongolian word for a yurt. And you stay in these traditional round units, I guess. Um, Very beautiful on the inside, lovely bathrooms, wonderful amenities. And it's kind of from there, you just, it's kind of the center of a wheel with folks that go in all kinds of different directions. And so you experience very directly, you can see the nomads, they're present at the hotel. There's a well that the owner of the hotel kind of discovered and and expanded. And so goats and sheep and horses are coming to water at the well. And it's really interesting, the nomads, that sort of the central way of life hasn't changed for centuries. I mean, they do have phones and even motorcycles things that the modern world has given them. But really the basis of their lifestyle hasn't changed, which is herding their animals and milking their sheep. And this hotel, you can see it 360 degrees. So it's really interesting in that respect as well. Marcia, we have to talk brass tacks. It's tough to get there. Very tough to get there. Tell us about your itinerary and travel time involved and kind of what the cost and situation is like for that. Sure. I went, I flew from LA through South Korea and it took almost, I arrived almost two full days later because I had a long layover in South Korea. It's a long, long slog. And once I got there, I think people who travel to Asia experience this a lot. You don't really know what day it is. You say, oh, what happened to Tuesday? It's already the end of Wednesday. I think that's just maybe my inexperience in Asia. I've been several times, but this kind of thing, there is no direct way to get there. Also, I mean, it's been a bad summer for travel. I'm in Costa Rica now and my flight has already been delayed several hours. I don't know why, because of storms somewhere in the world. But Mongolia does have its share of cancellations and kind of unreliable flights. I think 
if you plan to go there, you can't be the kind of person that has to be back at work on Monday morning, back at the office, at your desk on Monday morning. You have to have a little bit of flexibility. You have to be, to use a word that's a little bit maybe overused, a little bit intentional, like I am going to experience this place. And for me, one of the greatest experiences was a travel mishap. I was flying back from the nearest airport to Three Camel Lodge. I was flying back to Ulaanbaatar and the flight was canceled and we either could have waited 12 hours for a flight that we weren't sure was going to come and maybe it would, we weren't really given a guarantee, although they did tell us it was coming 12 hours later, or we could drive across the desert. And that just seemed like a, a really difficult proposal that also it ended up being one of the greatest experiences of my life because I really saw the landscape change. I saw the rains that they'd been waiting for for two months and people really celebrating. I saw, we saw herds of camel, we saw herds of horses and goats. And, but yeah, it's, it's not a place where you, if you have one week vacation and you have seven days, I wouldn't go to Mongolia. But if you can say, I am going to just throw myself into this incredible experience that I can't get anywhere else in the world, which I think people really want these days. And people like remoteness and people like a sense of adventure. So in that sense, that's, I'd say, go for it. Sounds terrific. It sounds like if you go there, you've got to embrace the nomadic style of the country and just be ready to kind of follow it where it takes you. So it's beautiful. Yeah. I hope more people go. I think it's really trying to attract tourists. And I think the country really deserves it, especially people working in the tourism sector. They're just, they're trying really hard and they're doing a good job, really good job. Wonderful. Thank you, Marsha. It's a very inspiring um, piece of reporting. Thank you so much. All right, Michael, I think we have our next holiday travel plans sorted, as they say. Maybe airmail retreat, just book it over there. What could happen to 50 staffers on a GUR in Mongolia? We'd get a lot of great ideas about it. I have no doubt of that. If they ever do a reboot of Lost, there's the premise for the first season. Funny. All right, Michael, it is the weekend. We've got things to do, people to see. Before we go out into the world, what do you have to recommend to us? Well, I'm going to recommend something which, like many of you, people may have seen, but a lot of people haven't seen it already. Can we talk about Oppenheimer for a second? Because I'm going to. Can we? Are you kidding? Did you do the Barbieheimer thing? No, I didn't. I'm not a Barbieberian, as they say, storming the gates of every multiplex. I saw Oppenheimer in the past week, and I just want to say, if you haven't seen it yet, please go see it. It's a stunning, brilliant, haunting film. And I think Christopher Nolan, he's made so many so-called fun movies like Batman about the fictitious battle between good and evil. But this one is about good and evil in the real world, and it's unforgettable. It's a story set in the past, but it's very apt for today. So I know a lot of you will probably think, I'll wait till see it on TV. I'm going to say, go see it in the theater. It's not just a big film in the true sense of the world, but a big film to be seen. As big a screen as you can get, that IMAX experience, it'll just blow you away. So that's my recommendation. Okay. I saw it in IMAX, Michael, because when you're in the Midwest, that's what you do. And I have to say the IMAX screening of that was too much for me. It was too loud. The explosions were too jarring. It was too much, too much, too much. But I thought the sound design on it, I mean, surely it's going to win an Oscar for sound design because between the music and like those hums in the background throughout the entire three hours, what I loved about it is it didn't go where you thought it was going to go. I thought it was extremely well done, provocative and a great weekend for the movies. I mean, we've all been reading the stories in the Times and elsewhere about the blockbuster numbers and ticket sales and all that. And I think it's very promising. It gives filmmakers a lot of reasons to be optimistic that people will come and go to the theater again when there are movies this exciting that are not just the same old superhero franchises. So note to 
to solve. Yeah, and I think you mentioned an Academy Award for sound design. I think a special Academy Award for Murphy's eyes and the color of blue they are and just whatever God's special effects for those, you can just get lost in them. I could look at those all day. <laughs> yes, you could, dear. And you, my dear, what can you recommend? Well, have you been watching Quarterback on Netflix? I have not. Tell me all about it. Okay, I, I think we should just establish right now. I'm not a football fan. Even though I was a high school cheerleader, I had no idea how the game was played. I have to tell you, I think this is such a great documentary. Wait, listeners, we're going to come back. I want to see a documentary on Ashley as a high school cheerleader in Kansas. All right, time in, continue. <laughs> I only lasted one year. I'm not very coordinated, but it was really not about football so much as it was about these three quarterbacks. It was produced by, among others, Peyton Manning, who had quite the career in football. Someone else can talk about because I don't know anything about it, but it follows these three quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, who plays for the Kansas City Chief, Kirk Cousins, who plays for the Vikings, and then Marcus Mariota, who during this particular season was playing for the... Atlanta Falcons. It just gives you an inside look at these guys and what they put up with and what they endure and all the many requirements of their job. Like it's not enough that you're just an incredible athlete. You also have to be a team leader and media savvy and able to deal in diplomatic relations between various teammates. I mean, I left this with a whole new respect for the players in the game. And even for those of us who have no interest in football, I think it's still a really great way to spend a few hours. It is called Quarterback on Netflix, an eight-part documentary series. And maybe we'll do a special version on Aaron Rodgers playing for the New York Jets this season, but we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Well, you lost me there, Michael. You lost me there. <laughs> we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we'll be back with Tales of Michael's high school athletic experience. Michael, you please read us out. I'll just say, on your marks, get set, go. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.